If you do have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And it's 36 to actually 46. If uh, you would stand with me as we read together. Matthew chapter 26, beginning to read in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this is your word, and every time your word is spoken, you have something to say. This is not some document. This is not some book on a shelf. This is your divine inspired word that was meant to be put into the hands of every last human being. And we are the kind of people who treasure that word, not just for what it is um, in its document form, but for how it transforms the way that we think and how we behave. And so we pray, Lord, that that is exactly what your word would do this morning, that you would use it, Lord. You, you talk about your word as being able to penetrate through to the depths of the division of, of spirit and soul, joint marrow. And I pray, Lord, that your word would do that work this morning in our lives. And we submit to it now, and I pray that you would help me to get out of the way so that you can speak from your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So this morning, we're going to be talking about prayer, but we're not going to be talking about maybe in the normal sense of how uh, we uh, talk about prayer. We're going to be talking about prayer in terms of what it looks like in times of uh, deep anxiety, in times of uh, great anguish, and... Um, these are the kinds of times that we cry out to God uh, when we're um, disillusioned. Oftentimes, it's the kind of prayers that go unanswered. Many of you, I'm sure, could come up here and give your own personal testimony as to what those times of prayer have looked like for you. Times you've been crying out to God, times you've been disillusioned, where there's been a circular thinking going on in your head, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, and you're crying out to God in prayer. I'm sure many of you could come up and give your own testimony to this. But as likely as it may seem, this is Jesus who's going through it, not us. And so we turn in our main text to uh, Matthew 26, and we pick it up here in verse uh, 36, and it says, Jesus then came uh, to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. Sit here while I go over there to pray. The backstory to what's just happened before they've gone to Gethsemane is they've been uh, having the Last Supper. 
And it was the Passover, and Jesus really desired to have this uh, Passover with his disciples. It was the last meal they would share together. And as uh, great as his Passover service was taking with Jesus, it turned quite dark. Um, Jesus uh, describes the bread and the wine as his body and his blood that was about to be poured out for them and for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. So this was meaningful, no question for the disciples, but it ended up in actual quite darkness. As they're celebrating together, Jesus makes a prediction, and it's not his own prediction, it's a prediction of Zechariah. Turn, look back there to verse 31. Jesus is saying to them, they just had this incredible supper together, and he says to them, you will all fall away because of me. Every last one of you, you're going to fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now Peter doesn't want to believe this, nor do the rest, and so down in verse 35, Peter says, even if I must die, even if I must die with you, I will not die you. I will not, I will not deny you. And all the disciples were saying the same thing too. An incredible meal, this last Passover that Jesus is able to have with them, it's going really well, and then Jesus says, every last one of you is going to leave me. You're all going to leave me. And Mark chapter 14 and verse 50 says that exact thing. All of them left him and fled. But at this point, Jesus is not just predicting it from himself, he's actually quoting Zechariah. And so when supper is now finished, and he leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he instructs eight of them, Judas is now gone, so he instructs eight of the disciples to sit and wait, and he takes just three of them along with him. In verse 37, it says, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Jesus is going now to pray, and he asks his three closest friends to keep watch and pray with him. This notion of being with him in prayer, though, is not physically, because Jesus goes a little beyond them. But he's asking them to join him in prayer anyways. He says, I'm praying over there by myself, and you three are going to be over here, but could you watch and can you pray with me? The three of them at this point, they don't know what they're supposed to be specifically praying for, but they are to keep alert and keep praying and carrying Jesus in their prayer, who is now, it says here, deeply grieved. Jesus will be praying in another place, but he's asking them to join him in that prayer. And isn't this exactly what we do when a brother or sister or husband or wife or one of our kids is in some kind of difficulty? We want to join them in that prayer. We want to carry that burden with them. And Jesus says, can you carry this with me? I'm deeply grieved. The deep grief of Jesus is in his words to the point of death. The scale of Jesus' grief as he's praying here is approaching death in its anguish. Now, I have no idea what that would be like, but that's the way it's described here. And Jesus is about to endure the most, uh, about to endure the worst kind of human suffering possible. The kind that no human being will ever face ever again. We know about his physical suffering, and I'm sure many of you in the past have seen the show, The Passion of the Christ. It's quite graphic in terms of Jesus' physical suffering. 
was, would have been quite excruciating. And we could spend quite a deal of time on this for sure. His physical suffering was horrific, but I would argue that his relational and emotional suffering was far worse. Just days after the crowds were chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as he comes into Jerusalem, now they want him crucified. His disciples, who were the closest of his friends on the planet, every single one of them abandoned him. Every one of them. But the last crushing blow would come from God the Father. Jesus' last words, you remember, Jesus' last words as he's on the cross was not about his physical suffering. He says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was utterly alone in those final moments as he carried the weight of sin on his shoulders and God the Father in those moments turned his back. He's facing all of this now in prayer and he knows this is all coming and he wanted out. He wanted out and he asked God, can you please change it? This is not just please can you change it. This is to the point of death. Luke describes him as a drops of sweats of blood as he's praying in deep anguish to the point of death. He wants out. He wants God to change it. And it's not different from us. When we're going through some kind of uh, extreme difficulty, when our own health or the health of somebody we love is failing, we cry out to God. Or when we're in the midst of some kind of emotional pain, we cry out to God when a co-worker, when he slanders you or a close friend betrays your confidence, your brother or your sister, maybe they laugh at your expense. Or maybe, maybe even your spouse in the midst of a disagreement, they spew out painful words that seem impossible to ever take back. Jesus, he's been through it all. He's been through the extremes of such pain. And here they all are culminating in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of this is now weighing on him as he's crying out to God in prayer. And so verse 39 says in our text that he falls on his face in prayer. Everything about this prayer reveals the deepest levels of grief and anguish. And so he prays, Father, if possible, can you take it from me? I don't want this. I want out. So what's going on here? Well, to be clear, and we know this, Jesus is asking for an alternative. He wants an alternative, he wants out. The kicker is this, he knew it was God's will. He knew it was God's will for, to go through, for him to go through it. But he wants out. Both the prophets, all the prophets have predicted this. But Jesus wanted out nonetheless. Maybe there could be an alternative, because he provided an alternative with Abraham and Isaac when he took Isaac up and God told him to sacrifice him and there's an alternative there to that sacrifice, so maybe God could do it again. Maybe there's some kind of an alternative. There's a precedent set. But didn't Jesus just declare that this was the purpose for which he had come? He knew this. Jesus clearly knew the will of God. Remember the rebuke that he gave to Peter? If you don't, flip back a few pages with me. Um, chapter 16. He rebukes Peter when Peter comes up with an alternative. Luke chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. He's saying this is what's going to happen. 22. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Jesus predicted that he was going to die. He knew it was God's will. And he even rebuked Peter when Peter said, There should be an alternative, and no, it's not going to happen to you. So what's Jesus doing here then praying for an alternative? What's going on here with Jesus? This is Jesus in absolute agony and anguish as a human being. In anguish, his thoughts were circulating around in his head as he's trying to figure this all out. And he's emptying all of himself out to God in prayer as he wants out. This is not Jesus sitting here. He knew the will of God, but he still wanted out. And sometimes that's just what it is to be human. Sometimes that's just what it is to be human. When we're faced with a situation where all the momentum is pointing to some kind of painful conclusion, everything is pointing towards a painful conclusion, or maybe you're already in the midst of that conclusion, we pray. And how do we pray? We pray, God, take it away. We don't want this. Take it away, we cry out to him in prayer. Anxieties and mental confusion and circular thinking and, and praying hard against these painful hardships of living in a fallen world is not sin. Nor is it revealing weakness in faith, but rather revealing the normal Christian reality. I'm going to say that again. Anxieties, mental confusion, circular thinking, and praying hard against painful hardships of living in a fallen world is not sin. Nor is it revealing any kind or any sort of weakness in faith. It's revealing what it is to be a normal Christian. I've been reading a book recently by C.S. Lewis called Letters to Malcolm, and it's on prayer. It's a really good book. I, I recommend it. In, in this book, he says this. Jesus could not have prayed that the cup would pass from him while simultaneously knowing that it would not. He could not have prayed that the cup would pass from him while simultaneously knowing that it would not. Those two don't work together. But when we're praying against these kinds of things that are coming in on us and these painful conclusions, we're not to feel guilty in such prayers of anguish. We're not to feel guilty. King David, read the Psalms, it's littered with this kind of stuff. Now, of course, Jesus did say, not my will but yours be done. But isn't that the thing that we mostly we fixate on? We get to this prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane and we skip all the anguish, we, we skip the sweats of blood and we just say, oh, not my will but yours be done and that's what we're supposed to do. Well, hold on. What's he doing here beforehand? He wants out and he's crying to God that he wants out. C.S. Lewis again, he puts it this way. The perfect man experienced it and the servant is not greater than the master. Jesus, our great high priest, he experienced this and he went through it. And we as servants, we are not greater than our master. So did Jesus have his prayer answered? Well, no. And yes. The first part of his prayer was an answer because the cup of suffering was not removed from him. But the second part of his prayer was, not my will, but yours be done. Now, we're reading this story 
And we often read stories in the Bible in retrospect, and we can easily see how all things work out. All things work out together for the good. But we were not there. We were not there in the midst of it. And I am not in the midst of whatever kind of hardship or suffering you're going through. I don't know. And when we're in the midst of it, our vision of, of God's will <clears throat> at work is very difficult for us to see. It was difficult for Jesus to see, and it's difficult for us to see. That's okay. It's okay. It was okay for Jesus, and it's okay for us. But aren't we often told by our Christian brothers and sisters who are trying to empathize with us, they say, well, it must have been God's will. It just must have been God's will. You're going through all kinds of hardship and pain and suffering. Well, it must have been God's will. How do such answers help? They don't help me. And I'm sure they don't help you. What does help in such times is joining in prayer. Praying yourself and joining a brother or sister who are going through it or asking somebody else close to you, could you pray with me through this? That's what Jesus is doing here with his closest buddies. <clears throat> Isn't this what we should be doing? We join the prayers of others and we carry the burden with them. We don't offer these trite little sayings back at them. When others are blinded by pain and suffering, as Jesus was here, we join our fellow Christians in prayer against it. We don't offer trite answers. And some of the trite answers are, well, don't, don't worry. God's got a redemptive purpose for this. God's got a redemptive purpose for this. Such comments are not very helpful. They're not very helpful. Now, do such redemptive examples exist? Exist, of course they do. Remember Joseph after his brothers threw him into the pit? Remember he predicted that all day, someday they'll all bow down to him, so you know what's going to happen in the future. And he gets thrown into the pit, and we often quote the end of the story, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I'm sure you've heard that, the end of the story of Joseph. But even though Joseph knew it, someday his brothers would bow down to him. Tell me, what did Joseph say? Don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. Or take Paul, when he was suffering through his thorn in the flesh, and he prayed to God. His conclusion, he accepted it. He accepted it as it was going to keep him from becoming proud. But when Paul is in the midst of that suffering, he begged God three times to remove it from him. So yes, there are times when suffering is shown to have a redemptive purpose. I understand that. But even in those times, the godly sufferer is still begging God to get them out of it. And redemptive outcomes, by the way, do not always occur. The greatest man, apart from Jesus, from Jesus' own mouth, the greatest man to ever walk the planet was John the Baptist. Can somebody tell me the redemptive purpose by his senseless murder? You remember Herod? He's in his, I don't know, probably a drunken stupor. And in his little party, this, this girl starts wandering around and scantily dressed or who knows what. And he says, you ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she says, how about the head of John the Baptist on the platter? So John the Baptist gets beheaded and his, and his head gets brought on the platter. Can you tell me the redemptive purpose in that? The greatest man ever walked the planet apart from Jesus Christ. And he gets beheaded for some kind of party trick? What's the redemptive purpose in that? Or the stoning of Stephen. Why doesn't God just come and take out these villains? Just take them out. Instead of saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why didn't Jesus say, Saul, Saul, your time is up? And take the guy out. And why doesn't Jesus answer our prayers to heal us when we're sick or when we're dying? 
Now, when you're in the midst of some kind of hardship or pain, or you know somebody's in the midst of it, what I'm about to tell you is not the kind of answers you give in those moments. They shouldn't be answered in a moment. You should pray with them and carry the burden with them. But one does need to reflect on this later. God's overall purpose in giving freedom allows for love to exist. God's overall purpose in, in allowing for freedom, it allows for love to exist, but it also allows for the potential of evil. Genuine freedom, well, of course, it'll allow for love, and we want that aspect of it. But it also allows for the potential of evil. And this fallen world caused by evil choice will affect our lives in both general ways as a consequence of the fall and sometimes in specific ways through the choices of other people. And in order for freedom to really exist, the outcomes of our choices must be allowed to play out, meaning that God's intervention must be extremely rare. I'm going to say that again. In order for freedom to exist, the outcomes of our choices must be allowed to play out, meaning that God's intervention must be extremely rare. But in the midst of hardship, this is really hard to see. And it was really difficult for Jesus to see. Here's the point. Pain and suffering causes the most godly people to become blinded by God's overall will. His overall will of freedom. It's hard for us in the midst of it. And it causes us to become blinded. And in those moments, it leads to deep, anguishing prayer for God's intervention, as we find with Jesus here. According to verse 40, when Jesus initially went away to prayer, pray, it lasted for an hour. An hour the first time. But then it says Jesus comes back to God and prays the exact same thing again. Comes back, finds him sleeping, and then what does he do? He goes back and prays the same thing again. I don't know how long this whole process would have taken, but this is a long time of prayer with Jesus saying, I want out, can you find a way to get me out of this thing? At this point, Jesus zeroes in on a specific kind of prayer though for them in verse 41. He says, keep watch, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus himself knew this because he himself was in the midst of temptation. And they were about to head into it. And Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Essentially, our resolve, in, in, in moments like this, we come to a service like this, and we're strengthened with great worship, and we're strengthened by God's word, and our resolve is strong with the Lord. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is also weak. The flesh is also weak. And our resolve to do something may be strong, but the flesh is there fighting against it. Galatians 5 describes this. And when we're in the midst of temptation, the weakness of our flesh lures us, lures us to sin. It's a permanent problem in the Christian life. While we're on this planet, it's a permanent problem. Our flesh is going to lure us to sin. The key in such times is to pray. And when we pray, there is greater help in times of our temptation. Without prayer, there is less help and less aid from God in temptation. Now some of you may know that you're about to head into a time of temptation. As Jesus knew with the disciples, that's the time that you pray. 
Some of you may be in the midst of it. It's a time to pray. There have been times with me where I've had to go to see somebody in our church, and um, Andrew and I, uh, we don't have the, the liberty of watching our people get caught in sin and stuck in sin and just watch them go down that pathway. We are, we are obligated as shepherds of the church to go and to help such people turn uh, away from that sin, but Andrew and I, we don't know what we're gonna get often. And there have been times with me that I knew I was heading into a volatile situation. And I didn't know what I was gonna get. I didn't know if I was gonna get a scoffer from Proverbs chapter nine. You correct a scoffer, and you're gonna get insults back and they will hate you and despise you. And in those times, I don't know if I'm going to a scoffer or if I'm going to a wise man who wants to hear the correction. But I don't have an option in those moments, but I tell you what, I pray like crazy. Because I know if I go in there and I get scoffing and insults back, I know what my tongue wants to do. And my head has all kinds of ways to get back. I pray, God, just help me to keep my, my tongue to myself, help me not to say anything stupid here. And sometimes when we know we're heading into a time of temptation, we need to pray in advance. And maybe some of you are in the midst of temptation right now. That's when we pray. Many points in the beginning of Jesus' ministry is the greatest moments of temptation in the wilderness. I would argue it's here in the Garden of Gethsemane. But in the end, he laid down his will. He laid down his will of the human flesh for the will of the Father. Um, I've got a few lessons. I know these aren't exhaustive, um, but I've got a few lessons um, that I hope uh, you wouldn't miss from the text. I want to put them up before you here. First of all, um, pain and suffering causes the most godly people to become blinded to God's overall will, leading to a deep, anguishing prayer for his intervention. So this may be something you've gone through in the past. It may be something that you're going through now or maybe something in the future. But we need to understand that Jesus, who was the most godly people on the planet, he went through this. And so pain and suffering, what it does is it causes the most godly people to even become blinded as Jesus was, to become blinded to God's overall will, leading to a deep anguishing prayer for his intervention. Of course, Jesus still submitted to it, but in the midst of it, in the midst of it, he became blinded. And this is us. That's what it is to be a human being, it's okay. It's not only okay, it's what it is to be a human being. And then secondly, living in a fallen world, unfortunately, is gonna impact our lives generally as a result of the fall, or specifically through the evil choices of others. So we live in a fallen world and so it's gonna affect our lives, there's, there's no way we can get around this. We live in a fallen world and it's gonna happen. And so there's going to be aspects of this fallen world that's going to impact our lives, generally speaking. And on occasion, it's going to specifically hit us through the evil choices of others. And of course, the disciples, that was really, really hard on Jesus. when He was all alone. And sometimes the evil choices of others affect us that way, relationally. And then finally, praying against the hardships of life may result in God's intervention. It may. That may happen. And we pray for that. Or it may not. But Jesus, who's gone through them himself, has promised to be there to help. Well, I've got Hebrews 4, 15 there. He's our high priest who can sympathize with us. Because he went through all of this and it was without temptation, it was without sin. And so he can empathize and sympathize with us, our great high priest. And so we pray against it. We pray against the hardships, and you should. That's what it is to be a human being. And as we're praying, God may intervene. He may intervene. 
It's going to be rare, but he may intervene or he may not. But if he doesn't, know this, that Jesus has gone through it himself and he's promised to be there to help us. One thing to remember is that when we're talking about God's overall will in, in regards to freedom, be very careful uh, when you share when somebody's in the midst of suffering because the, the main thing we need to do in those times is just to pray with them. That's the main thing we need to do. Um, but there will be a time you're going to have to help them understand because if they get if they stay confused and not understanding how God's over, overall will allows for freedom, and as a result, um, it's, it allows for this fallen world, and it also allows for the evil choices of people that will hurt us.